Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, comrades, welcome to another edition of the Fifth Column podcast. You are used to hearing the stentorian voice of Camille Foster, who yells greetings, and that's kind of our tagline. But Camille, who has a new baby, you should send him things and booze and all sorts of nice gifts and just send him your love, uh, is doing that. Matt Welch. My other fantastic co-host is probably on MSNBC somewhere regaling an opponent with some sort of arcane libertarian point. But this week we have one of those special editions we do. So I've done a few of these. I know you guys who are regular listeners have heard Camille talk about race with Skip Gates and most recently with uh, John McWhorter. Uh, it was a great, that was a great one, by the way. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it. It's a good equal time John McWhorter and uh, Camille discussing all the things you expect from Camille. Um, and this week, we're going to do that again. We're going to do something different. Um, we're going to do that sort of one-on-one thing. And this week, we have a nerdy one. We have one for people who love media gossip, the history of magazines, the history of New York media and society. I brought in uh, Tina Brown, the great Tina Brown. Uh, who was the editor editor of the Tatler in England when she was very, very young and then was uh, brought to America to edit Vanity Fair, to revive Vanity Fair, which she did, and then went on to be the editor of The New Yorker. There's no amazing bit of journalism in that time that Tina didn't touch. I mean, she was, she was all over the place. And after that, a very brief uh, thing with uh, Talk Magazine, which uh, failed, and, and she did with Harvey Weinstein. We don't get to the Weinstein uh, bit in this interview uh, because she's talked about it a lot. And I feel that it's, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit uh, boring at this point because Tina's written about it, and you can read those pieces. Uh, but at the end of this, listen towards the end. We talk about the Me Too movement and we talk about the sort of idea of uh, contemporary politics and what it means and Twitter mobs and all this stuff. And, and Tina's very interesting on it. Uh, but but you can get there, get through the other stuff to, to there, because the, the other stuff at the beginning is us talking about Tina's fantastic and interesting career. And we're doing that now. Because Tina has a new book out called The Vanity Fair Diaries, 1983 to 1992. Um, and it is published by Henry Holt. And it's just out in stores now. It's just, you know, diary entries, contemporaneous entries from this world, the, the go get em 80s, the gilded age of New York in the 80s. And the characters are pretty amazing. Donald Trump makes appearances. The Reagans make appearances. We talk about William F. Buckley for a second or two uh, in the podcast. And... You know, Tina has very interesting ideas on media, what's changed about media, what media is becoming now. And so I sat down with her and we talked for about an hour. And I will say one thing. I do have to acknowledge something, which I, I do acknowledge during, during our interview, is that, full disclosure, I worked for Tina Brown. And I worked with her uh, for her at the Daily Beast, uh, which is something she also created, uh, taking that title from the great Evelyn Waugh novel Scoop. Uh, 
because the uh, boot of the beast, uh, the the paper is the Daily Beast in that, and the Daily Brute, which is the competitor in that in that novel. I always wanted to start the Daily Brute. I should do that. Let's compete with Tina. But we talk uh, a little bit about the, about our overlap. So Tina is somebody who I've worked for, and um, I have great respect for. Uh, so that should be, be, be known beforehand. I want that to be the full disclosure, but I, you know, will apologize to you up, up, up front that we do some nerdy stuff about the magazine industry and about journalism in the past and the state of journalism in the present. So I really hope, uh, that you guys enjoy it. Um, it's something very different. And, um, if you like it, uh, tell me, and if you don't keep it to yourself, I don't want to hear it. I, I get depressed. I'll go to bed sad and I want you to send me booze. So please send me booze. <laughs> send Camille money. No, it's the other way around. Send me money and Camille booze. And uh, if you, if you, if you love it, uh, tell me. And if you don't, you know, you know, just, just, you know, write it down in your, in your diary and then publish it uh, like Tina Brown. This is my conversation, Michael Moynihan from Vice News and a fifth column podcast with the great Tina Brown. The fifth column. Tina Brown, welcome to the fifth column. Very good to be here, Michael. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a new book out. I do. The Vanity Fair Diaries. You know, I have to say, by the way, I remembered and I looked up and this this was true that a couple of years ago, it was reported that in 2016, we were getting a memoir <laughs> called Media Beast, I think. Right. You, what you happened? Found me out. What happened to that? Well, what happened is that I actually hated poking around in the entrails of my life. I found it exceedingly depressing because I'm such a sort of action junkie. I just wanted to be out of the house. And then I thought, I know, I'll start with a discrete period, like Vanity Fair. That's beginning, middle and end, you know. So I went back to my diaries, which was going to be the source of so much of my memoir. And I started reading these Vanity Fair diaries. And I thought, wow, there's so much here. How do I kind of extract and thematize this material? Or is it more fun to take this material, edit it, shape it and make this, you know, a book? Because it seemed to me... So this is media based. This it's is fulfilling your contractual it, obligations for that. It, yes, but also <laughs> it's it's. I felt it fitted the the period in the yeah. time. There's something about diaries. I am a diary addict. Uh, I keep beside my bed the diaries. I don't know if you've ever read the diaries of Chips Channon. Chips Channon was a, uh, a sort of upper class figure, an MP in um, the 30s and 40s in in the UK, in, in England. And so his diaries are absolutely wonderful. They're all about the abdication of, and, and they're about you know the outbreak of World War II and having dinner with uh, von Ribbentrop mm-hmm. and talking about you know whether or not Hitler's a very good chap or not, and all of this stuff, which is so riveting in the kind yeah. of here and the now. So I am a, I'm a big They don't really editor. exist anymore. I mean, you don't see a lot of books come out that are diaries. Letters don't exist much. I mean, we, we communicate via email, and I remember talking to Christopher Hitchens' uh, widow, Carol Blue, about, you know, you should really publish Christopher's letters. And, you know, most of the stuff, which is, you know, look, if you look at his study, there's piles of paper everywhere. Most of them are emails. And she's like, I don't know how to get those. So, I I mean, I don't feel that people keep diaries much anymore. And it's I have read, you know, Waugh's diaries and his letters to, you know, to uh, to uh, Jessica Mitford, I think, was one of those. Uh, Well, it's a big it's going to be a big loss, this this whole art form, really. I mean, I don't know. I, I sometimes write my diary now. But now I do it on my laptop. It's funny the inhibition of sort of cracking open your it's laptop, different. bringing it down, yeah. and starting to write. It I, I still do about once every two months or something. If I'm on a plane, I will do so. But it hasn't got the same sort of uh, 
mad frenzy, if you like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of writing, you know, in, in longhand in those books, which I used to do when I used to come in from things. My husband was living in Washington at that time. And, uh, you know, I just... And your husband is Sir Harry Evans. My husband is Sir Harry Evans, the journalist. Yeah. And your I, Lady Evans. And I, well, sh- I only use that when I can't get a table in a restaurant <laughs> in London. So I, you know, I, I, I was just taken over Vanity Fair. I just arrived in America. I had all of this stuff to in- unload, you know, yeah. so I was, I became... A frenzied diary. Well, let's talk time. about that because, I mean, the book starts and it reminded me, I, you know, somebody who actually you used to date. It reminded me of Martin Amos's the first uh, couple pages of Money when he's barreling from JFK towards John Self is barreling uh, to, to, to Manhattan, describing the smells and the senses of Manhattan. And it's especially Manhattan in the early 80s, very different, mm-hmm. different place. You start the book the same way. You're coming from England to America. Tell me what you were doing in England and what brought you to America? Well, I had been uh, made an editor at a very young age, at 25, of the British glossy magazine, The Tatler, which was kind of like a shiny sheet when I took it mm. over, with a great pedigree. It was actually originally published in the 18th century and then had kind of come this shiny sheet. And I was, you know, it was bought by a real estate guy who was trying to make it into a real glossy magazine. And he hired, he decided to go for youth. He couldn't afford or find anybody proper to edit it, right? And I was this young Turk journalist out of Oxford who had been writing for, essentially like someone who today would be writing for the Daily Beast or Gorka Mm. or something. Mm. And he asked me uh, if I would, you know, become the editor, and I did. And it became a great success. You know, it. it uh, I hired my friends, as you do when you're a young editor. And, you know, there was a staff of 12. The motto was, if you haven't got a budget, get yourself a point of view. And I had uh, an attitudinal staff. And we made What was fun. the point of view? It was very irreverent. You know, the Tatler had been this magazine that chronicled the establishment's doings and took pictures of them at parties and wrote about them. But in a sort of sycophantic way. In a sycophantic sort of way, yes. And I just totally changed that back to front. You know, the photographs became witty. Uh, In fact, the photographer, Daffy Jones, now has exhibits and his his, his pictures of the upper classes at play. Mm. It went from being sipping, you know, an amortillado at at an opening of a a picture gallery to some hooray Henry, as we call them, you know, hurling some Deb, you know, with her knickers in the air, you know, into a swimming pool. (laughs) So it was like that, you know, and we had... A very funny, uh, irreverent uh, cast of writers. I mean, we had Martin Amos writing, Julian Barnes, Auburn Ward, wonderful writers actually wrote for me at Tatler. So we transformed it and it became uh, a hit, uh, you know, it was small but but uh, sort of buzzy. Mm. And we also had the best social story of in, in, in centuries, which was the rise of Princess Diana. So that story we owned, you know, and we wrote that story. We really did. It yeah. was like O.J. Simpson to CNN. You know? And you ultimately wrote a book about Princess I wrote a Diana. book about Diana, and the Diana phenomenon was really made our fortunes. Then Condé Nast magazines bought it. Cy Newhouse, who was the big emperor of Condé Nast, yeah. it was his company. He then launched Vanity Fair in America, relaunched it from its uh, years in the vault. Uh, it used to be a well-known magazine in the 20s, 30s. It died in the Depression. He wanted to bring it back with a bang and make it the kind of rival to the New Yorker, which at that time he did not yet own, although he eventually bought The New Yorker too. And he wanted to have a big, buzzy, big, glossy magazine. And they put out this, the first issue had all this hype going into it. It was the classic thing of huge hype, you know, big pictures, posters everywhere saying, Vanity Fair, no contest. Vanity Fair, you know, coming shortly. And there'd be a picture of John Irving in boxing gloves, you know. Mm. And unfortunately, it was a huge turkey. It just laid a giant egg. Yeah, And so... 
then they asked if I would come and be a consultant from Tatler and sort of help this You're pet. how old at this point? I'm just 29 at that point. You're a 29-year-old British consultant coming over to to revivify this old brand that was relaunched and died again. Exactly right. And then they put in this interim editor from, you know, the old dude upstairs who was from from Vogue. And the idea was, you know, well, they'll do a May-September pairing, right? They'll put him with Mm. me and it would all be fine. Except that within about 10 minutes, I realized that he was a total disaster too. I Mm. mean, he was just even worse. And so I went, I said, that's it. I said, you know, I'm not going to stay. You know, I said, if I'm the editor, I'll stay. If not, I'm leaving. And I left. And you left. I mean, did you, I mean, and and, and outside of the magazine, this is a fantastic book for a number of reasons. And I've, I think I've said this to you before, the irritating thing about the name Tina Brown, when you mention it now, this woman who transformed magazines. Yes, yes, yes. But it's very well written. You're a writer. And that's, I remember that when I read this is also a collection that I have of, I think your old Tatler things. It was a loose talk. I just so touched that you would even have seen that. I, I own it. Come on, like, it. I mean, that was my little kind of enfant terrible jotting. Yeah, so but it really it's, a, it's a fun book. It is. It is outrageous. <laughs> I mean, when I look at what I used to write about people, I was such a, a, so mischievous and, and yeah, yeah. It was and how you managed to get to the positions that you did, despite taking shots at all of these people, is something that I'd like to learn from you because I don't know how you managed to do it. But this is a fantastic <laughs> book about how to put together a magazine, how to change a magazine about about media. But before I get to that. How did you find America? What did you What did you think well, when you got here? Well, you know, I this did, is a lot about your lot perceptions about of, of America well, in this book. You know, I did this few months as a consultant. Left, went back to London, sat there thinking, "I've blown it, I've blown it." They'll never offer me the job. Then they offer me the job. Yeah. So then I think, right, I'm not going to prevaricate. Now I'm here. And then I really began to think about America a lot, which I do throughout the diaries, mm. and a lot of its ruminations, as you say, about the difference between England and America. I found America you know, always and this duality about it. And I still feel it really, you know, at one point I say America's too big, you know, too noisy. Mm -hmm. It's too much of it. It needs editing. It needs editing. Yeah. And I found it exactly that. I was overwhelmed, you know, because London, which I had thought of as the capital of my world and a big place, a big metropolis, I suddenly felt was like a you know, a uh, country garden compared to... Which you write when you go back. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, it, Manhattan in the 80s, in the, in the Reagan era, it was this booming, bustling, uh, you know, uh, incredibly materialistic. I, was, I, I, I note again and again, I'm overwhelmed by the presence of money and materialism yeah. and, I, I, and, and always feel very uneasy about that and, and feel that I'm, uh, as I write at one point, you know, sort of dancing on the edge of a volcano, that it's a sort of... I sense that it's precarious. I think there is a sense of precariousness actually throughout. Because and I think you quote Lewis Lampum, the former editor of Harper's, yeah. um, saying that if you want to get America, you have to realize that it's all about money, particularly about, about money. New York. It's yeah. all about money. And I, and I constantly say, you know, I was paid so much less in England, yet I felt, you know, completely like I live yeah. like a king, whereas I came here and I was paid a lot more. But I always felt, where's the money? You know, itch, it, the money itched the whole time because that's what people cared about. But at the same time, I also love that positive energy. And, and you know, I write at one point when I phone England to talk to writers, I say, you know, I can hear the rain in their voice. You know, it's like <laughs> my, my old beau, as you call him, you know, Martin Amos. Um, you know, I, I call him up and ask if he'll write a piece about a Broadway show. And he goes, do I have to go? <laughs> and I just go, oh, my God, you know, this, this is why yeah. I'm here. It's like yeah. this constant thing that yeah. the Brits do. 
But of course, it's also what I love about England, which is their sort of absolute skepticism. And but it's everyone quite- leaves. I mean, Martin is here. In, Martin Amos yes, is here in New York. Christopher do. Hitchens came to, to Washington, D.C. You're here. There's some sense in the book. I mean, at one point you say, I think, I'm gonna, I, think I belong in, in Beverly Hills or belong in L.A. Yeah. Um, I mean, your, your father was a film producer, yes, right? Yeah. And there was a familiarity to that world. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's other sort of moments where I think, you know, you, you feel like you want to go back to England, but you're still here. I'm still here because what I came to feel was, you know, there's just the horizons are just so much bigger here. Yeah. You know, that there there was a sense of getting off the plane in England of finding the sort of the sky lowering, mm. which in some ways was cozy. You know, there was a coziness to England. Yeah. It's it's much, your stomach kind of un unclenches uh, if you've been living in Manhattan. But it also, you know, it, it, I like the edge of being here too. You know, mm. I, I am a as I say, a girl of the arena. I mean I do like being in in the you know in the world of the action. And the action, there's no action that's better or bigger than Manhattan. So, no. you know, I, I found that very exciting. I, I, of course, there's the other undertow in it, though, is it's also the time of AIDS, you know. So although it's such a kind of exciting place and time, I'm also, there is this specter that stalks, you know, the pages, really, which is I'm constantly at funerals in the diaries. That really surprised me when I went back. Parties and funerals. Parties and funerals. Yeah. Should have been the, the, should the, have been the subline. The sub- Parties and funerals. <laughs> there was so much of it. Yeah. You know, you go to these funerals. Of the people who were at the parties. But, yeah, I mean, it's, and it's, and it's interesting to, to be in New York now and to read this book. Um, you know, it feels in a way like Bonfire of the Vanities mm-hmm. where you have, you know, this incredibly violent world that is New York, this dark kind of, you know, AIDS, poverty, mm-hmm. crack, you know, yeah. and then this, this world of opulence and this yeah. world of incredible wealth. Absolutely. And it's changed dramatically, hasn't it? I mean, not the wealth bit, but but it's a safer, safer it's a, city. It's a much yeah. safer city. I yeah. mean, a lot of the uh, the dark stuff that I that was there in the 80s has been sort of airbrushed sort of out of the mm. picture now, you know, because it's sort of been swept off the streets and you don't see as much of it. And of course, there is no crack epidemic. But, you know, the 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 disparity, of course, in, in wealth has never been bigger. And mm. some of the people who are in the diary, like the Carl Icons, I mean, there's still Donald Trump, dare I say the name, mm-hmm. you know, are absolutely going strong. So in, in, in a way, the 80s has kind of come back in strain. It's kind of swept back to us like stuff that had been swept out to sea and now has been brought back. But there are a lot of people in, in this book that I say, good God, whatever happened to that person? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of missing people. Yeah. I mean, some that have just kind of fallen off the scene many of whom have passed away. Mm-hmm. When you went back through the diaries, you know, w- when you're just sort of leafing through these, who are the characters that sort of stuck out at you that you don't see much anymore, that you missed, that you said, God, that was really a moment with these people? I mean, these parties are really something to behold, even yeah. on the page. Yes, they are. Well, you know, of course, Saul Steinberg was a huge figure in those days, giving massive parties. He actually ended up losing everything. Yeah. Um, his brother ended up taking over his company when Saul had a stroke and he ended up losing everything. So, yeah. you know, his wife, Gayfred Steinberg, who's such a kind of character in the book, she's like a kind of uh, Trumpian social hostess who I'm constantly studying because I'm fascinated by her sort of tubular thin uh, body and her and her amazing social generalship, if you like. I mean, you know, she's now married to Michael Schnessen, a writer at Vanity Fair, which yeah. is just really extraordinary. Jerry Zipkin was a big character in the book who who was this social walker, as they used to be called, you know, who was... Uh, he gets his, a pretty, pretty rough ride in the book. He gets times. a pretty rough ride. He <laughs> is, I mean, like, you know, he he's like a, a, an inflatable dinghy, as I describe, with these little sharp teeth. 
In fact, Truman Capote once wrote about him that he had a face like a bidet. <laughs> and he had this wailing voice. And he was such a figure because he was Mrs. Reagan's best friend. You know, yeah. and he also used to be the escort of all her best friends yeah. when she, he was in Manhattan. And so he was the kind of the conduit for all of this gossip that was sort of around the Reagan White House. So you had to be on the good side of Jerry Zipkin and he could wreak absolute havoc in your world with just three phone calls where you would get denied access, you'd have an advertiser go down. You know, he he just knew how to put the poison in. But he's also pretty funny too. And he had this voice which was like, hello, you know, it's like, (laughs) do you know the Marquess and Charmley? Hello. It's like, and you know, and you ended up just thinking he was absolutely hysterical. It's and, funny with conservatives now. I mean, this this deification of Reagan, and uh, you know, you get it from from anyone from Donald Trump. I, I imagine Roy Moore would probably say the same thing. <laughs> and you forget that that all of these sort of gay men that surrounded uh, Nancy Reagan, and or the same thing with Pat Buckley, William absolutely. F. Buckley's wife, absolutely. Um, and William F. Buckley, Pat Buckley make appearances in this book. But tell me a bit because this we do typically a very political podcast. This is, this is, you know, we do talk a lot about media too, so this is slightly different. Tell me a little something about is a scene in the book where you are jetting down very quickly on, on you know, no time at all to the White House uh, to photograph the Reagans. And this mm-hmm. in uh, Zipkin is involved in this sort of negotiations. Tell me a little bit about that and the, the, the White House in the 80s during oh, the Reagan God. years. Well, you know, we, uh, we were invited, you know, we'd, we'd been trying to get access to do a shoot with the Reagans. I wanted to do a piece about their relationship because it seemed to me, and I think this was correct, actually, that the sort of the story of the Reagans is them, is the mm-hmm. two of them. That in the end is the enduring thing about Reagan. I mean, the Republicans think that it's all about, you know, his politics. Actually, it isn't really. It's about the imagery that they managed to put forth at that time, in my view. And they had a brilliance about sort of colluding with the national mood, the two of them. I mean, they were actors, yeah. after all. So they knew what the public wanted to see. So I wanted to do this piece. And I asked William Buckley if he would write it. He said yes. So that helped me get the piece, right, which you always have to have a hook. And we, uh, one of my staff was close to uh, his chief of staff. And anyway, the, the shoot came through. And I decided to take Harry Benson to do the picture. Mm. Harry Benson was this, is this wonderful this sort of excitable Scotsman who who's t- photographed every president since anybody. And he comes and he brings with him a boombox, which really, really dates me, mm. and a cassette with Nancy with the laughing face by Frank Sinatra. And he sets up this white background in the map room in the White House. The Reagans were told on their way to have dinner with the president of Argentina in the stateroom. So they're all dressed up in black tie garb. They were always having these state banquets. I mean, the Reagan, I mean, I don't know how many Trumps had yet, but I mean, the Reagans were just constantly entertaining. Yeah. Everyone was always being shipped in from Bel Air and Park Avenue to attend these. And it was a slightly Hollywood Squares sort of jeopardy cast, really, with a smattering. B and C listers. A little bit B and C listers, <laughs> absolutely. In fact, the the high point in which Nancy upgraded that whole thing was when she invited Princess Diana to come and had yeah. John Travolta there. And asked her, and everybody thinks it was Diana's dream to dance with John Travolta. Actually, she had no interest in John Travolta at all. She thought she was going to dance with Barishnikov, but he had a bad knee. <laughs> so suddenly she finds herself swirling around the floor with poor old John Travolta, who at that point was in a B-list moment too. So yeah, this was before his uh, Quentin Tarantino this rebirth. Was, this yeah. was he was welcome back Carter yeah, at that point. He was yeah. in a kind of trough after yeah. sort of two years in Saturday Night <laughs> Fever. So this was not a particularly hot thing at all. She made him hot. So anyway, so they come through the door and we hear the sort of tinkly laugh of Nancy and the kind of, you know, black tie, blah, blah, blah of, yeah. of, of Reagan. He hits the boombox, plays Frank Sinatra, and Nancy looks at, at, at Ronnie and goes, 
oh, Ronnie, that's our song, let's dance. And the two of them stop, this fox drop up and down or in around and around as if there's no one there. And I'm standing there, you know, with Harry Benson watching the First Lady and the President just dancing together, talking about their day, by the way, too. He was completely wrapped. I mean, it was just nobody there except them. And, of course, Harry Benson is jumping up and down. Mr. President, give your wife a kiss. You know, give your wife a kiss. <laughs> Scotsman yelling the at you. Scotsman yelling and him <laughs> jumping up and down, five cameras, you know, click, click, click. And I'm just thinking, smiling to myself, thinking this is going to be just great. He gives Nancy this big smooch. And, you know, this is the Reagan kiss, which becomes this massive sort of front page of every paper, leads the news, you know, viral before there was viral. Mm. And it just turned around our fortunes, this this whole cover story, actually. I mean, so the cover story was written by William F. Buckley. And the photo, which is a famous one, is, you know, with the, with the leg kicked up. That's right, the Nate Reagan dancing. It was originally yeah. going to be the picture with the kiss. But just before we went to press, uh, Jerry Zipkin decided to get into the mix and make Nancy very anxious about the shoot because she had said to Jerry, apparently, oh, I just did the shoot. What do you think? He said, oh, no, that's <laughs> going to be just embarrassing. You know, you really should make Tina Brown show it to you. So uh, there was this call to Cy Newhouse saying, I want to see the pictures. And for the first and only time, Cy Newhouse was very uptight about this. I mean, he never interfered with anything I ever did. But I get this call saying, I've had a call. There's a problem. You need to send these pictures to the White House. And I said, but what are you talking about? I never show pictures to anybody. Hmm. Uh, And he said, well, that's just too bad. You better just send these pictures to the White House. And he had that sound in his voice, which I, you know, you rarely heard, which is don't argue. So I thought, well, I'm not doing that because I'm not going to send these pictures to the White House. I will take them to the White House so I can do my little tap dance when I get there. Put on my Reagan red suit and pick up my little (laughs) Chanel handbag. (laughs) Code switching. Code switching. And I take these pictures to the White House and I sit outside this press office for two and a half hours waiting. Who's the president? Michael Deaver? No, it was actually, it was this woman called, her press officer called Jennifer Hirschberg, her name was. But funny you should mention Michael Deaver because I think some of the angst which Jerry Zipkin planted in her mind was they had just had this whole scandal about Reagan being photographed at Bitburg Cemetery. That's right. Which was full of Waffen SS. Yeah, Waffen SS Cemetery. It's kind of, as in politics, we call that bad optics. It was very bad optics. And suddenly Michael Deaver, who always got it right, this was just, he really fucked that one up. Yeah, I mean, you fucked that one up in the SS cemetery versus dancing with your wife and kicking her <laughs> no, leg back. It's exactly slightly right. different. Somebody, yeah. Jeremy Zip was saying, you really have to bit back. <laughs> so, so I had to go and, and, and persuade them to do it. But she, I managed to get them. I basically said, look, look, switch the picture for the, the kick, yeah. leg kick. And we did. So it but there's, yeah, there's great politics a, a, in the book, too. And, you know, for, for listeners who say, you know, Tina Brown, it's maybe a little too magazine, New York centric. There's that stuff, too. It's very funny. But the politics and I, one thing I was uh, laughing at was the description. God, who is it? Was it uh, uh, someone you described as more suited to be the prime minister of Norway? Walter Mondale. It was Walter Mondale. Actually, perfect, perfect description. And I was like, yeah, no, he yeah. looks like a prime minister of, of well, Liechtenstein or but something. But also, yeah. I'm kind of. Uh, you know, I, 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 it's very funny because Reagan now is such a is such a sainted figure. Yeah. yeah. But I keep saying, talking about his reams of plastic neck. And yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he seems yeah. like, you know, That's, 192. Yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, I clipped that somewhere, the, the, the plastic neck and the folds <laughs> on it. But it's funny because, I mean, what you see in this book also is is the 80s and you're talking a lot. I mean, it just, it's, it's the way you're perceiving these things is the utter of Vanity Fair. Of it in American politics, you know, what you say on the stage doesn't really matter. Ultimately, it's how you project yourself and how you present yourself. And that's always been true. And it's kind of we've 
known that for many years. But you see now, obviously, that Donald Trump was elected um, not on policy whatsoever because he's essentially a game show host. Mm-hmm. And he's very good at being a game show host. And um, a friend of mine told me that uh, Donald Trump, uh, who would know that when guests would come into to Trump Tower, he had a pile of the ratings of the first season of The Apprentice, and he would sign them and give them to people. The ratings, a printout of the ratings. And that's exactly what you see with the crowd size, you know, arguing with the Park Service within the first week of his presidency about how many people were there. The entire thing is a rating show. He judges himself entirely on those numbers. And he's in this book. Yes, he is. He he, he recurs like a virus. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The virus seems to have spread to Pennsylvania Avenue, yeah. And... uh, and, you know, he's at first he's fun. You know, that's what I yeah. think is fun about diaries is that you just, you know, you're not overlaying what you think now. Yeah. At first, I think he's funny. I, I read the. But article, he is funny, isn't and he? he is funny. Yeah, no, he is funny, actually. Trump can be funny. I mean, the only time I really did like Trump and began to, and saw the point of him was when he was asked when he was running how he would feel if he lost this race that mm. he'd run. And he said, I would consider it a complete waste of time and money. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's not. And speaking of William F. Buckley, his famous quote about when he was running for mayor, what would you what would you do if you found out that you won? He said, I'd demand a recount. It's not as you know pithy and smart as that, but it's still funny. It's funny because it's so damn honest because everybody yeah. else would say, well, I would consider my contact with the American people one of the great. You know, he yeah. didn't say that. I it mean, just, that was what was refreshing about his candidacy mm-hmm. in some way. I mean, when yeah. when all of a sudden you're like, oh, God, this joke is continuing and it's a bit yeah, terrifying. I think this was the last time that I found him for refreshing, which is why yeah. I, yeah. I yeah. remember it so yeah. vividly. But during... Uh, the 80s, you know, he submitted the art of the deal for an extract. and uh, You extracted that for Vanity Fair. Uh, I did. I extracted yeah. that for Vanity Fair. I thought it was a funny book. And I, I write in the in, in the diaries, you know, it's it's bullshit, but it's authentic bullshit. Yeah. And I think that the American people will like nothing better. Well, tell me pressing. what you mean by that, authentic bullshit. The voice. I thought yeah. the voice, uh, you know, I, I think I write in it, actually, that, that the only thing I want from a first-person memoir by a sort of a non-writer is yeah. I can hear a voice, like we did Julian Schnabel's book. He was another kind of braggart, but it was, yeah. it was a fun, real book. You heard the voice. And you did hear the voice with Trump. He's never had a problem with voice, as we know from his Twitter feed. At that time, I thought it was funny because every other you know, rich person was full of pomposity and, and pretense and, and he wasn't. So that seemed fun. And, you know, the first time I met him was at this dinner that Anne Getty gave um, with people like Jerry and Zamkin. <laughs> and, there was, and there was Trump sort of two doors from me and his dinner partner wasn't talking to him and mine wasn't talking to me. And so we kind of bounced it back and forth. And he went, you know, Tina, you know, I'm on the cover of Newsweek. You know, uh, what do you think? What's better, time or Newsweek? I said, well, of time, I think, actually. Mm. And he goes, well, no, I could have had time, but I didn't. I had Newsweek, but I could have had time. I had more. Then he starts going on about his. So in other words, the same person as today. The same guy. But I thought it was quite funny, particularly as this Italian decorator next to me was going like, oh, this man, Donald Trump, he's so vulgar. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, there's such a, a relief in a way of the stuffiness of some yes, of these yeah. these things. Of, yeah, you know, and it was the so third Viscount from Croatia yeah, sitting next to you is utterly boring and, and has a huge exactly. pile and in the country. Exactly, and Getty was sort of some huge poof dress and yeah, things like yeah, that. Yeah. You know, so he was yeah. funny. Um, then, as sort of time goes by, you know, he's he's business. You start to realize it's all a fr- it's all a fraud, kind of. See, and it's I write about that in the diaries. You know how actually. So contemporaneous with this happening, you said yeah. this is kind of a fraud. Well, later I did, like yeah. a couple of years later, yeah. I, and and when it was clear his casino business was in trouble, he was trying yeah. to pretend it wasn't all of that. So we write, we chronicle his financial chicaneries. Yeah. And Marie Brenner does this killer piece about him that uh, describes, uh, you know, how he's it's all just smoke and mirrors. 
and also that he had Hitler's speeches on the desk, which is that's sad. right, which has come back uh, quite a, quite a few times during during this this election cycle and you know recently too, and. Yeah, it was in Vanity Fair. It was in Vanity Fair. And how did he respond he, to that he, article? He went ballistic. I mean, that was it. I mean, he just, you know, phone calls, screaming, denouncing things in the page six, all of this stuff. And then he subsequently, Marie Brenner was at a, an event and he passed behind her chair. She felt something wet in her back, turned around and Donald Trump has emptied a glass of white wine down her dress. <laughs> at and least it was white wine. At least it was white wine. And then he's <laughs> darting off across the room. He doesn't even got the the cojones to yeah. have, have a confrontation. So from then on, he's like the complete enemy of Vanity Fair. What is interesting, though, is that we used to have these portfolios at the end of each year, the Hall of Fame, we call them, you know, after homage to the very first Vanity Fair, we used to do that. And each of them had a caption, because he, because he, because yeah. he. And Trump, we had... Because he wants to, con because he thinks he can neg negotiate arms control with the Russians, mm. which I thought was interesting when I read it back. Yeah. First of all, it showed that he was even at that time he had sort of political pretensions or aspirations. Mm. So I don't think it was quite such a sort of turnabout that he went into politics. I think he had probably been thinking about it for quite a long time. Yeah, I mean, around the same time, he took out a full-page ad, I think mm -hmm. in the Times or maybe it was in the New York Post, uh, demanding the execution of the Central Park uh, uh, suspects in the, right. the jo jogging Who turned out who to turned be innocent. innocent. Yeah, <laughs> of course. That you sounds know, right, doesn't he it? He has a, a prescient <laughs> man. He has good political instincts and sense, but, you know, he is president. Um, so obviously Donald Trump reads stuff in Vanity Fair and is annoyed by this. You've been in magazines and media for a long time. This happens frequently. Has anyone been annoyed by this book? Uh, or did you cut out a lot of this? I mean, I'm well, sure that there's stuff you left on look, the cutting room I, floor. I, I, I'm sure that uh, <laughs> people are going to take issue. It takes time for a piece, to, a book to be read. There was things that I that I cut, obviously, because I mean, I had a kind of rule of thumb, which is like, is this entertaining enough uh, that you know I don't care what anybody thinks to pay it's, the social cost? It, for it's it. too yeah, good a joke. Yeah, yeah. It's going to have to stay. Yeah, <laughs> or is it? Does it shed light? Is it prescient? Is it interesting in the light of today? I mean, you know, there's no need to have a drive-by shooting. I mean, you're not going to say, had dinner uh, with the complete time-wasting bore Michael Moynihan, <laughs> if you're never going to see Michael Moynihan again. So yeah, no, no one writes that because, <laughs> I, you know, I'm not important enough to be written about. But no, I mean, you are brutal about some people in this book. And um, I'm thinking of this, one of, some of these great forgotten people, Swifty Lazar, right? <laughs> oh, yes. And I'm going to read you something. Forgot about Swifty Lazar. Yeah, so Swifty, and if you don't know who Swifty Lazar is, he was a... Major Hollywood agent. Mega agent, right? He was a mega agent who at that time, yeah. it was it was Swifty Lazar who invented the Oscar party. I mean, yes. Swifty's Oscar party Vanity Fair, preceded which, Vanity Fair. Yeah. And when he died, yeah. Vanity Fair took over the venue and yeah. the spot. So Swifty was the great maitre d' of Hollywood, really. And if you don't know about Swifty Lazar, you probably don't. I would imagine anyone does. Let me tell you about him, and I'm going to read a, two sentences from, from your diaries. Swifty is tiny and bald and hairy in the wrong places. From the back of his bald head, an ancient baby's neck looked like crinkled foreskin. So that's why I'm thinking, good, I'm sure she edited out some other things about some other people. But there's a lot of fantastic um, stuff uh, in this. I, I loved that that you referred to Warren Beatty as having an unserious nose, for instance. <laughs> well, it's funny about that. Yeah, Warren is, you know, I always find with celebrities of that magnitude, they're never what you expect. I mean, mm. they could be 
less amusing, more amusing, better looking, more smart, but they're never what you think they're going to be. Yeah. Uh, in the case of Warren, he's kind of this bookish, vague, you if you, if you, he's a kind of Mr. Chips figure, really, yeah. you know, a kind of a, like he could have been a history teacher. Tortoiseshell glasses. Tortoiseshell glasses. Alan Bennett play. He's exactly. I mean, completely, that, yeah. you know, losing yeah. his keys and sort yeah. of, you know, um, horn rim glasses. But then he takes off his glasses and he gives this smile and all the crow's feet yeah, sort of yeah. stand to attention and, and he looks pretty <laughs> glorious actually. He's, so what but what is it about celebrity that has that has I there's a dishiness that you like about it in a journalistic way, but you've always been attracted to celebrity and you use this phrase that uh, mix, right? A magazine mm-hmm. has to have mix, high and low. Mm-hmm. It has to have smart pieces by, you know, somebody like Norman Mailer, and then you have to have sort of low culture stuff, which is a celebrity stuff. And, you know, Cy Newhouse is constantly going through Vanity Fair and, and, you know, having focus groups on every single page and shockingly finding that people like celebrities. What is it about celebrities that attracts you so much? I mean, you grew up around celebrities because mm-hmm. your father was in the film business. Well, I'm actually more interested in what made them celebrities, quite honestly. I mm. mean, I, you know, one of the things that I... One of the things I did learn uh, doing Vanity Fair was the people who really have huge careers and reputations usually are underpinned by tremendous gifts of some kind. And that's what really interested me, actually. I was just thinking, and I'm still interested in that. You know, the other day I was at a, a podcast and the, uh, the person who was doing the podcast was talking about The Rock, you know, Dwayne Johnson. And, you know, during the course of the conversation, I realized, you know, what an amazing sort of talent Dwayne he's Johnson is. Yeah, I know. And look yeah. look what he's become. I mean, he's become a massive tycoon, a huge movie star. He's apparently an obsessive uh, worker. You know, every hour of every day is filled he with... He said he might run for president. And, so, yeah. but, but, and you know what? He probably will. But, yeah. but the point is, it's like, it's easy to dismiss somebody mm. because of the way we read about them, in a sense. It's, the celebrity culture minimizes everybody, makes everybody ridiculous in yeah. some ways. But some of the ones who really survive are not like... So when I met Michael Jackson, I mean, we all know... Michael Jackson at that point was already seen to be something of a freak, a weirdo, all yeah. the rest. He was those things. But what I discovered in the course of meeting him is he's also very shrewd and very offbeat and very interesting in a, in yeah. a serious way. I mean, I asked him what he did when he comes off stage, very wired, you know, from these amazing shows. And he said he goes back to his hotel room or go, went back to his hotel room and read the short stories of Frank O'Hara. <laughs> Right. So, I mean, is that true? Yes. Well, I don't know if it's true. It actually happened, but he told you that. Well, why would he say it? I mean, yeah. I, I mean, he plucked it out of where? You know. Yeah. I mean, I certainly wasn't expecting him to say the short stories of Frank O'Hara, a New Yorker <laughs> writer of like the forties. I mean, uh, you, uh, you know. So I was completely stunned, and I just thought, you know, people are so much more interesting and complicated than their kind of aroma. Yeah, I mean, with with, with the, the shrewdness of Michael Jackson, famously, he he did a duet with uh, Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney recommended to him that, you know, you buy song catalogs because you can make a lot of money on royalties. It's like gambling in the stock market. And he said, that's a great idea and went and bought the Beatles back catalog. <laughs> and Paul McCartney Precisely. was saying, are you, are you kidding me? And he said, well, sorry, you know, all's fair and that's love right. and, and, and publishing royalties. Well, yeah. that's exactly right. And yeah. that is what I saw because in the course of that discussion, I realized he's just so shrewd. I mean, mm. you know, and his business advisors weren't kind of crazy weird people in cowboy hats that, mm. you know, and, and, and Band-Aid on their cheeks, which is what <laughs> he had when he walked in. I mean, his business advisors were, you know, David Geffen, the mogul, yeah. and Michael Eisner of Disney and yeah. Michael Ovid, who at that time was the head of creative artists and was the great big cheese of Hollywood. So he knew what he was doing. So how has it changed? I mean, look, you you left the Daily Beast in... 2015? 2013. 13. Mm-hmm. God, is it really 2013? 
So I, I mean, you fourteen. Fourteen. You've still been in media in, in, in different ways, but that was a daily, in the Daily Beast, it was a daily pursuit, constant churn of the news cycle. If you look at media now, and it doesn't have to be just celebrity and how we've changed our perceptions and how we sort of consume this stuff, but, you know, it's a very different world, isn't it? And I think that people talk often about, do you read on the Kindle? Well, yeah, I mean, that's not really very interesting to me. What's interesting to me is there used to be a five o'clock deadline because it had to get to the printers and you would go to the bar and you'd, you'd drink and then you'd go home and the cycle would start again. It doesn't end now. Mm-hmm. So you need no, more people. You have less revenue. Mm-hmm. So now you have to hire younger people that can that demand lower salaries. The quality seems to be different to me. The focus seems to be different. The demand for clicks. I mean, if you sell the copy of Vanity Fair, you probably know because of Cy Newhouse what story really popped. But now it's every individual article you're being judged on. So well, you've only got X number of clicks. I mean, how thing, has it changed? Uh, well, I think massively in the sense that, for instance, you know, my whole kind of uh, I was Trumpian in the way I measured myself on newsstand sales. I mean, in the end, you know, you knew if you were really a hit if the, if the cover if you sold on the newsstand a lot more than the month before. Uh, nothing moves anything on the newsstand now because the newsstand is completely irrelevant. The most frustrating thing I used to find even then about monthly magazines or even any magazine is that there's an awful gap between when you send it to press and when it appears. And there is this, I used to think about, you know, the magazine trundling across the country on the back of trucks, you know, taking a week to distribute. And you sat there with bated breath hoping that the material in it wasn't somehow scooped or, or stolen. Now it's completely impossible. For instance, we had one of the great iconic covers of all time with uh, the Demi Moore pregnant cover that Annie Leibovitz shot and which now, you know, every movie star ever since has has done their Demi Moore pregnant yeah. cover shot. Even Serena Williams. Even Serena Williams. And it's now a rite of passage that yeah. you're not a pregnant star without your Demi Moore cover <laughs> shot. But, you know, that gave us like 350,000 more on the newsstand and took us from more than that, some 700,000 at 1.2 million from which Vanity Fair never went back. You know, so from that one cover, you gained probably 400,000 400, and but, you retained it. And we retained it. Now, when Vanity Fair more recently did the Caitlyn Jenner cover, which is arguably in that same kind of pantheon of yeah. a cover that everybody discussed uh, and was everywhere, viral didn't make any difference on the newsstand because everyone saw it online. There was no need to buy the magazine. Mm. There was no need to really look at it. What do you do about this? Well, now everybody's saying and has to say newsstand doesn't count. That's, that's, That's very sort of there's something about that that doesn't gel well with with editors because it's a hard habit to get out of. You have to judge yourself on other things. So I, I ask about that very often. Like one editor said to me, well, we have a huge Instagram following. And I go, well, that's great, but where's the revenue from that? There is no revenue from that. It's about, well, it's it's great for our brand. Mm. So somehow you have to hope that some kind of amorphous halo from your brand kind of brings sponsors and advertisers into your mix. And to your, but actually, it's a con, really, because, okay, it's great. It's great for your brand. But, I mean, who's going to pay anything for anything? Mm. So the problem is that now you have to sort of make a magazine – part of a big eco sort of system around and build things around it. So the magazine... Podcasts, conferences, video yeah, content. Yeah, and like all that, that's great. It's just that it's, again, getting the the revenue model right because you've still yeah. got to have people to do that. So what's actually happening now, which I feel <laughs> is terrible for writers, is they have to be able to, like, not just sing but also tap dance, juggle, you know, stand on their heads. I mean, writers are expected to not just submit a piece but for the same money, certainly no more, actually less, 
they're asked to then go, oh, yeah, we also want you to do, you know, Facebook Live today. And now you have to run in and do a podcast and you've got a tweet and you've got a pin and you've got a, I mean, the amount of extra garbage you have to do simply to get your piece sort of, simply to justify your 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 payroll uh, is absolutely demoralizing. It's the reason I know you, by the way. I don't know if you remember this, but I was I did a story about a New Yorker writer named Jonah Lehrer who was uh, a fraud, and I had uh, uncovered that, and I was doing a lot of media, and a guy at the Daily Beast was bugging me. Oh, God, was he bugging me? Come in, do this do this video thing, you're doing video things, too. And I came in to do it. I finally relented. I said, I'm in the West Village. I'm close enough. I'll walk up. I did that. And then you kind of, you know, swanned out and said, I get, how, get, get Howie Kurtz, Howard Kurtz, who now is at uh, Fox News, uh, to come sit down with you, write a piece. He sat down with me with a, with a you know, a, a pad and paper and, and, and wrote it up. And then I came in and talked to you. I think we had That's an hour right. conversation. That's after right. that. I pounced. Was, you pounced. And you said, yeah. come work for me. And I said, yeah, well, yeah. why not? That's true. But <laughs> so now I'm showing my hand that I've actually worked for yeah. you. Never was there a better day. Never was there a better day. But if you look at this, I mean, this was a fear, because after Vanity Fair, you went to The New Yorker within the mm. same stable. Condé Nast mm-hmm. owned it at that point. And there was, you know, a palpable fear amongst the staff that Tina's going to come in and she's going to make mm-hmm. it high-low. And this is the Bible of high culture. Mm-hmm. We don't want it to be the Bible of low-mix mm-hmm. culture. Yeah, there was a terror that I was going to boot out the cartoonist and put Debbie Moore on the cover. Yeah. And yeah. so what happens? <laughs> Well, I have a lot of strings to my bow. I mean, I know how to play one, more than one act, you yeah. know, so uh, I was never going to do that. And actually, I wanted to leave Vanity Fair only so I could sort of stop doing that. I, I loved it. But it was like, you know, you made your last movie was a comedy. Now I want to do, you know, uh, you know, something else. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and I, I, I wanted I missed just being a literary person, too, because I was very much that in London. Even though Tatler was a glossy magazine, pre-Tatler, I'd been writing for the equivalent of the New Republic here and all that. So actually, I kind of wanted to go back to that. And I was also very intrigued by what I felt was the sleeping beauty of The New Yorker. You know, I thought The New Yorker had, as Tom Wolfe wonderfully put it, become easier to praise than to read. Um, that it was, uh, you know, people would say, oh, yes, I've got The New Yorker. It's it's piling up in the log basket by my bed, yeah. which meant, you know, you're not reading it. So it entered that dangerous place where people saw, thought of it as a jewel, but they actually weren't reading it. And the I think it might be back to that. No offense to David Remnick, but it's it's. I mean, I I used to joke with a friend of mine that you'd see people reading the New Yorker on the train, uh, holding it upside down. It was about more of just having the New Yorker. And I well, mean, I think it, I think it's got a pretty hot currency right it, now. Look, it does. And uh, but my my problem is that there has been this this kind of silly deification of long form journalism. I always compare that to saying like, what type of music do you listen to? I listen to rock music. Well, it's just an entire genre. Long form just means a lot of words. And some of this stuff can be cut down and well, when I got to the New York middle there. Yeah. I mean, the problem with the New Yorker when I got there was it was a word church. Yeah. I mean, it was. <laughs> 25,000 words yeah. on anything. And, and yeah. uh, at first I thought, well, this is not for me. I'd, I'd turn it down for the, you know, Cy came at me over a period of two years to keep doing it. And I kept on putting him off, mostly because I had two young children. And I thought I can't go from a monthly to a weekly and have any kind of mothering skills, mm. you know. Mm. And so I didn't want to do it. But then... Um, I went to the Strand and I looked at the old copies of The New Yorker under Ross, Harold Ross, the first editor, the founding editor of The New Yorker in the 20s and 30s, which were incredibly different, I felt, from the later magazines. How so? Well, the the whole visual rhythm was completely different. You know, the first New Yorker had huge full-page cartoons by people like Peter Arno and Charles Adams. 
very irreverent covers with these kind of funny cartoonists. It had a very uptown metropolitan feel. It was very, uh, the, the front of the book talk of the town was tiny pieces. I mean, I never managed to get them down to the size that Harold Ross did. I tried, but the long form gremlin had got into everybody's. <laughs> I mean, he managed to get pieces that were like 350 words of sort of brio yeah. at the front. Um, he had all these wonderful sh- departments, which were in a sense sort of short columns. I thought, this is fabulous. I could do this. This is my magazine. This has the tempo that I'm looking for. And so I went and decided to to sort of do Ross's New Yorker and combine it with obviously my own thoughts for to be contemporary. But my template really was the Ross New Yorker, not the later William Shaw New Yorker. And, uh, you know, I, I went and hired a whole bunch of wonderful new illustrators, cartoonists, a uh, great new cover editor, who st- they're all still there. And then I redesigned the magazine and made it much more, um, I, I sort of resurrected all the old sort of rubrics and typefaces. Too, and right? you know, yeah. then I added yeah. Richard Avon as our first photographer uh, and only photographer, which was, I think, a great move to kind of open the windows of those um, mm. clean type pages. But I did want to keep those clean type pages. I felt it was still a reader's magazine a writer's magazine rather, but I wanted it also to be a reader's magazine. I, I added headlines and um, bylines at the top. Bylines had always been at the end. Things that, you know, you'd think, well, that's obvious. I added a contents page. I mean, there was amazingly enough, there was no contents Is page. That, I, I don't Absolutely. remember that. There was no contents page prior to no, it was, 90, it, what, it, it was like 93? No, it was all this kind of impregnable idea that this was a fortress to scale as opposed yeah. to, you know, giving you any windows. <laughs> So I did all of that. And then I hired these amazing new writers and who are all still there. I mean, I hired, uh, I let go 70 writers and I hired another 50. You came in and let go 70 mm-hmm. writers. And editors, yeah, I did. I, it was a Good complete God. clean house. But I did keep the best ones. You know, I kept John Updike and Roger Angel and Janet Malcolm and, you know, mm. some of these wonderful writers. There were a bunch of writers who had not actually written a piece for, since about 1958 and they went. There were people who, and the whole kind of arcanery of the New Yorker was hysterical. I mean, there was sort of, you know, at one point there was one writer who who had like his entire family on the health insurance. I don't know how he managed to do it, but he had a he had an office. He had an office for his assistant. I think his daughter had an office. I mean, it was just <laughs> unbelievable. So I had to sort of clean up all that. Yeah. Uh, and, and which I'm sure made you no friends. Made me no friends. Yeah. Um, and I had a brilliant. You don't mind that so much, though, do you? Well, I had a brilliant managing editor who who came with me from the yeah. band, and we were partners all along. Pam McCarthy, she's a rock star. So she had she and I together did this thing. And then I brought in, you know, Rick Hertzberg uh, from the New Republic, who was so wonderful as my executive editor. I had. He was a Carter speechwriter too. At one he point, was a Carter yeah. speechwriter, but he's a magnificent. I like uh, that you stylist. said, but he's a magnificent stylist. <laughs> yes, don't hold it against him. I hired, uh, you know, um, David Remnick, Anthony Lane, uh, Jeffrey Tubin, who was an assistant DA at the time, but came aboard as a... And wrote the, all the OJ stuff. For he wrote all the, the OJ yeah. stuff. And the amazing thing is that, you know, Jeffrey Tubin is so good and he became such a star. But the first three pieces were complete turkeys. I mean, this is why you have to be very patient sometimes yeah. with new writers. And um, uh, I said, okay, Jeffrey, you got one last piece, you know, before you... We write you off yeah, as somebody yeah. who was a bad experience. You warned him and said that this might. Yeah, and off you. And so I said, why don't you go to 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 California and do this new piece on this whole case, this O.J. Simpson case, which and is now even became like a couple of years ago became that uh, uh, television. Indeed, and, film, he, and right? he wrote his book, and he became, and it was made into that wonderful uh, Brad Simpson uh, series. So yeah, no. So Jeffrey turned out to be a rock star. It, you know, writers just need to find their story. 
Mm. You know, and that was his story. And he turned out to really have a feeling for it. And what was wonderful about Jeffrey was that he could, um, he had an enormous sense of narrative and where the interest was. But he was also a great lawyer too. So he could do the, by, by going into the serious stuff, he ended up getting the juice, which is I tell writers again and again, if you, you know, they, there's, a, there's a myth that if you go in really strong and controversial and, you know, you're going to get great stuff, completely the opposite. You know, if you go and talk to an actor about, you know, how he did his accent in the last film or something, you're just going to wind up talking about his sex life in the end. But if you go in and talk about his sex life, you don't get anything, right? So the writers. So that's what makes. I mean, that's a question. I mean, you've been, you've had a pretty good track record of picking um, good journalists, young talent. I mean, now I feel it's just the, this this dump of of you know writing and people saying, "Oh God, I you know they don't leave the building," and they say, I "Watched the new Jurassic Park film last night, and I think it's sexist or something like that." And they produce <laughs> twenty five thousand words on it. What makes a, a a great journalist? What makes a great writer and a journalist? I mean, you have people like Dominic Dunn doing the von. Bulow piece, which is fantastic. I reread it recently. And some of these old pieces that that under your watch, like you're picking these people how? I mean, how do you on get voice, to, on, on voice. voice? I mean, Dominic Dunn, I've I really made into a writer because he was uh, uh, a film producer, you know, who was down on his luck when I first met him. And he had this tragedy happen, which is his daughter was murdered. Mm. And he told me he was he was going off to the trial of his daughter's murderer. And I was at uh, Marie Brenner's house, the writer, and she said to him, oh, Dominic, do you keep a diary? And he said, well, I do sometimes. And I said, oh, if you do that, you should really turn this into a piece for us. And I said, just just give me the diaries and we'll look at it. Well, it turned out he had an incredible voice, just as I'd hoped, because he had this kind of funny, mellow, irreverent way of talking about, you know, Hollywood, Park Avenue. And also because he'd been down on his luck and he was an AA, he also had a kind of empathy for the underdog, you know, which was really what made him so good. And, you know, I, I thought he had a voice. And I, and I think, you know, I, I say in the book, actually, that, you know, you can teach a writer how to write a lead or you can teach a writer how to make how to do structure. But you can't teach a writer how to notice the right things. Right. You can be a writer who good. And I learned this so strongly when I was doing my Princess Diana piece that I would get on a train and I would travel for three hours to go and interview somebody who'd been at the heart of the drama of Princess Diana. And it was a complete dud because they didn't notice anything. They yeah. just didn't. It wasn't that they were withholding. They were just not very curious people. So writers have to notice things. They have to be notice the right things. They have to. Uh, I also noticed um, in one example when I was working for you, I noticed that some great writers aren't particularly good writers, if you know what I mean. I mean, that, 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 that seeing people with their makeup off was one of the more illuminating things in my career. I mean, I didn't know. I was nervous when I started writing. And I was like, you know, I got to get it perfect. And it would take me far too long to do a piece. And then I realized all these writers that actually let the editors do the heavy lifting. And I remember one particular writer, a, a piece came in and no one wanted to edit it because it had to be cut down. It was 8,000 words. It had to be cut down to 4,000. And people were afraid to do it. And I think it was Gabby Doppelt, your mm -hmm. friend and long, long, long-time consistent who said, will you do it? I said, sure. And the writer wrote back after the cut, said, you know, I, I wish it was 8,000 words, but, you know, uh, good job. And I just <laughs> wiped the sweat off my brow. But getting that initial, you know, vomit of, yeah. of words, I said, God, this is a complete mess. I've it's been reading this guy for, for, for years. And I know. It's, well, a, I happened, it's I mean, a tough job. That was what particularly striking when I went to The New Yorker, actually, because there were so many kind of so-called brand name New Yorker writers who I realized it was, the, well, it was the editors who were so brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, as a matter of fact, 
sometimes that the writers got more and more dependent because their editors were so good. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had uh, I hired the brilliant Dorothy Wickenden from um, Newsweek, she was. And, oh, my God, Dorothy's amazing. She's so good on structure. You know, she can see the wood for the trees. She understands mm. where the piece should be going. And Henry Finders, another magnificent editor that I hired as a very young, uh, young editor from a small literary magazine. And he has turned out to be this kind of towering intellect and so many writers are sort of codependent on Henry, you know, because he, at one point I thought I suggested actually to Rick Hertzberg, who was my executive editor, I said, you know, we should have a, a cast list at the end of each piece, which is like ideas by Hendrik Hertzberg, you know, <laughs> sentences uh, yeah. by Henry Finder. Well, the New York Times Magazine started, by... <laughs> started putting editors on bylines in the, in the Times Magazine that has the editor of the piece now. And that, that that's a fairly recent thing. And I know you're running that's out of time. That's a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope. I know. Um, let me just ask you one final thing. Um, there was a, a, I was reading a, a, the book and I came across uh, a Nixon uh, dinner party with Nixon um, <laughs> and his felonious rubber nose, which I thought was great. Um, he was actually having lunch across the restaurant. Oh, it was. Side. Okay. So, at, yeah. at Le Cirque, yeah. So I'm going to read you this, this sentence here and I want to bring this into the present and see what you think. Um, this is one of your many comments about America, your observations as a young woman in America, sort of taking all this stuff in. And you write, it's fascinating. It's about Nixon. It's fascinating and oddly cheering about American democracy that the passage of years allows anyone to resurface no matter how vilified. And then the parenthetical, the upside of no memory. You say often that America has no memory. Uh, just end on this because right now we're in a moment where I'm seeing a lot of people that I know, people that I've worked with, being run out of the business that you and I have been in for some time. And it was fascinating and oddly cheering about American democracy that, that people could have a second act. And I remember saying once uh, to John Ronson, the British writer John Ronson, about, um, about Joan Lehrer, I said, look, I don't want him to be Stephen Glass, who is not allowed in the California bar. They have rejected wow. him right. because of what he did in the New Republic in, in yeah. the 1990s. These are California lawyers who say a plagiarist does not have the moral rectitude to be a California lawyer. And I said, look, I believe that we should allow this man to, 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 to work again and to be human again and to write again. It seems to me now that this has changed in American society, that there is a mob out there. And I'm not saying some people don't deserve it and some people uh, do and don't. I'm not going to adjudicate these things. But the, the, an accusation is enough to take you out these days. And you really run out of your business. You don't lose your job. You lose your vocation. You lose exactly what you do. And you better know how to make flat white lattes because <laughs> that's what you're going to be doing. Do you see that change now? Has it surprised you? Well, there's the a big Me difference. Too kind of moment that is that is has some sinew to it, but it's has it gone a little into this direction? Well, I mean, I think the big difference is social media. Yeah, because there's no hiding place. I mean, you know, you were able to quote disappear for two years, yeah. and then come back. The problem is that you cannot disappear. Where do you disappear to? I mean, you can't hide. Yeah. Doesn't matter what country you go to or where you flee to, they will find you on social media. I mean, short of going to prison, I think Anthony Weiner will look back on his two years in prison or whatever it is that he's doing right now for his sexting stuff. It's probably the very best thing that could possibly happen to him because he's off social media. Like nobody is kind of tweeting about him anymore. It's very difficult now because you can't hide. I think that people should be allowed to uh, be rehabbed. I mean, is there going to be a truth and reconciliation committee for everybody who's been run out of town? Clearly, many of them should not be allowed anywhere near their profession if they behave. Like someone you used to work with. Like someone I used to work with who yeah. 
the man, you know, if he doesn't end up in prison, I for one will be very disappointed. Uh, but yeah, the gradations are scary, and there should, I think, there should be a way to come back if you've simply been a boor, a churl, you know, uh, uh, an insensitive, you know, crass person. Doesn't mean I want to necessarily work with you or hire you, but I don't think that you should be stopped having any kind of profession because I don't know that that's appropriate. I mean, the whole idea of just justice is proportionality, right? I mean, you don't give somebody uh, somebody who has a parking violation is not the same as a person who has a hit and run in terms of their sentence, right? Mm. So I don't think you can give everybody the same sentence um, for gradations of... You are the British Matt Damon right now, who <laughs> said something very similar, that there's that there's a collapsing of degree here. Well, I think, I mean, you know, America's such an excessive place, you know? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about America is, in this lack of memory, etc., is just America forces change. You know, there's a kind of excessive niche mm. in America where everybody goes berserk into one direction. But it usually self-corrects or has up until now. Uh, whether social media means we can't self-correct, we will wait and see. Right now, it looks like everyone's been, you know, a lot of people are run out of town. But maybe, you know what would change it actually? It's just a massive event. Can you remember what happened at 9-11? Mm. Yeah, all kinds of stuff like this. Not like this, but there was mad stuff happening. And then 9-11 happened and everybody forgot about it. There was a terror attack in New York City and someone driving in a very sort of European sense, this happens a lot in Europe, driving down a bike path on the West Side Highway. And I don't, that was probably seven, eight weeks ago, and I haven't heard mention of it since. You know what? That is absolutely true. And I, I, I thought of that very thing just yesterday. I thought, oh my God, because it mentioned it. And I thought that, yeah. that, that was the biggest terrorist attack since 9-11. Yes. And nobody really broke a stride. And a stone's throw from the rebuilt World Trade Center. I mean, right. it was it was Terrifying. there for a reason. I mean, they did it there for a reason. It's and, certainly yeah. true of mass shootings. Yeah, well, that too. That too. I mean, there's you. that I think is probably more that we've gotten so used to it because um, it happens so often. And this is, is strange because, I mean, the, the, the overreaction, the overcorrection after the 9-11 attacks, you know, whether it was legally or it was foreign policy adventurism, had kind of inured us and numbed us to, to, to a lot of this stuff. And we just kind of wanted to forget about it. I wonder if you're right about this in, in, in this moment, you know, where people wait for the next bombshell, is that the bombs are becoming smaller and less effective. We're essentially sending B-52s to bomb, you know, Grozny in 1999. It's a parking lot already, and people are not noticing it as much. And I think that, you know, you have uh, celebrities every day being accused. And I said to somebody last week, it was a couple of weeks later, I said, did you hear about X? I can't remember, maybe Dustin Hoffman or something. And they said, no, I did not even heard about that. I said, well, you know, if this was five years ago, a charge that Dustin Hoffman should never work again, um, th that would be a pretty serious thing. But now it's just lost in the, the fog. You know, we had on, on this show, um, we had uh, Ben Dreyfus, Richard Dreyfus's um, son, and he works at Mother Jones Magazine. And we had a nice conversation. But Richard Dreyfus uh, was supporting his son, who publicly accused Kevin Spacey. And while he was supporting his son on Twitter, someone accused him. And it has had a very bad effect on his life and said, you know, in 1983, you, you know, had a meeting and took your pants off or something like that. It's a sort of Louis C.K. thing. But I think it's making people not want to come out and say anything about anything anymore. I mean, it doesn't mean that this is not a problem that has to be solved. It most certainly is. Well, we saw that with Alec Baldwin. He basically said, you know, he forswore Twitter. Yeah. I mean, he just said, you know what, I'm, I can't get this right. So yeah, is it, are we at a point of sort of peak toxicity? I mean, Ta-Nehisi Coates, the writer... You know, it was having a spat with Cornell West. He got off Twitter yesterday. Well, as a matter of fact, I think it's a very good solution 
which is to say, but the trouble is that, you know, can you go and hide anywhere? That's mm. the question. Yeah. Uh, you know, because of this, this, they'll hunt you down. I think that, that you can shut it down. I think that probably engagement at a certain point is toxic. Yeah. Tina Brown, author of the Vanity Fair Diaries, 1983 to 1992. If you don't go out and buy it, I'm going to be very cross with you <laughs> um, because uh, it's a fantastic book. It's very funny. And if beyond the media nerdery that we're discussing here, there's a lot for everyone in the book, Tina. Thank you for joining Thank us. Thank you, Michael. It was lovely talking to you. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column. Column, 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 column.